Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey Old is Dirt Knockreiner. <laughs> How old is Dirt? Uh, I think is it millions of years? Millions or billions of years. Yeah. That'd be pretty yeah. cool. Anyways. That's actually something I want to attain. That's my new goal in life. I need to upload my brain to ChatGPT. I'll be happy if I live to 200. That's my goal. Anyways, on today's episode, we're discussing another nation-state threat actor activity targeting network security or network access appliances. Uh, then we will dive into two updates in critical infrastructure with new regulatory requirements targeting certain sectors. And then finally end with a hack targeting a old as dirt video game system. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, game our way in. Beep boop, beep boop. Is that a thing? It's a thing. <laughs> we made it the thing. So let's start with uh, a pretty big news story in at least the SMB space, uh, where last week SonicWall published uh, technical analysis alongside uh, Mandiant of a fairly sophisticated malware targeting their SMA100 appliances that Mandiant believes originated from Chinese-sponsored threat actors. Uh, so while Mandiant wasn't able to determine... The, By the ahead. way, pro probably should pause and just uh, SonicWall, obviously uh, as someone that is a similar business than us, but just in case you hadn't heard, a SMA appliance is their secure mobile access device. So a network security appliance for sure, uh, not a full UTM firewall. They certainly mm -hmm. have those too, but this is uh, one basically for, for mobile secure access, things like uh, VPNs, SSL or otherwise. I, I actually think SMA is very you know, TLS type remote access focused. So just in case you're wondering, I know mostly WatchGuard customers, a lot of WatchGuard customers listening. I'm willing to bet that not all of our partners sell just exclusively WatchGuard though. So That's certainly some true. Familiarity. <laughs> so <laughs> anyways, um, so while Mandiant wasn't able to determine the exact origin of the infection, uh, they did believe that this campaign began in around the 2021 timeframe and likely persisted through multiple firmware updates. Um, so the technical analysis for Mandiant was actually pretty interesting. And by um, origin, you're probably talking about root cause or, or do you all, yeah, because we'll, we'll get into the who beat the potential who behind the threat actor there, there is a little bit of, a. Uh, uh, not an accusation, but an idea there. Yeah. So uh, in their technical analysis, they do a decent, albeit kind of like high level overview of how the malware works. Um, to those familiar with previous state-sponsored malware attacks, you'll notice quite a few parallels in this as well too, which is kind of interesting. Um, so the malware consists of actually six separate scripts and binaries that are all designed to look like legitimate files on a file system for a, not even just security, just a Linux-based system. Uh, there's one called firewall D, so mimicking a firewall daemon, HTTPS D, kind of like a web server daemon, IP table D, so again, another IP tables firewall rule, all basically designed where if you were just quickly look through the file system, they wouldn't stand out like a sore thumb. Um, the malware has redundancy built in that we'll get into in a little bit, as well as a persistence mechanism that can help it survive through a firmware upgrade process too. Um, so at a high level, like the main malware is contained in this 
bash script actually. So not even a binary, just a shell script that runs on the host called firewall D that executes a loop um, for, <laughs> it uses a count of all of the files on the file system squared. And that's the number of times it loops through itself there. And there's actually another script we'll get into in a second that kicks it back off when it exits. So basically ping pongs back and forth these two scripts that we'll get into. Uh, during each iteration, it'll try and launch a tiny shell backdoor. Uh, so this one's called HTTPSD on the file system, which effectively is just a typical uh, remote shell um, backdoor. So it makes a connection out to a hard-coded, or at least provided through the command line, command and control IP address on port 51432 at a specific time and specific day in order to open a reverse shell back onto the system. Um, in their analysis, Mandiant believes that the malware's purpose was mainly for credential theft. So another part of that script periodically queries the local SQL uh, Lite database. Um, so not a, it's not like a full you know, SQL database. It's more of like a flat file kind of thing um, that uses SQL commands to interact with it. On these devices, that database contains uh, session information for users connected to it, like username, hashed password, and other metadata. And it will periodically query this to grab that information, which ultimately can be retrieved by the threat actor. Um, it's got some interesting stability features built into it. So it actually has a second copy of that firewall D script saved elsewhere, um, where its job is to basically, if it notices that the first one is down, it will restart it. If the first one notices this backup copy is down, it will restart it. So that no matter what, once it finishes like it cycles, another one will spin back up and allows it to run and potentially survive through like a process crash or a process exit. Uh, the persistence mechanism checks every 10 seconds to see if a new firmware file is in the firmware staging directory. Um, and if it's found, it will decompress the package, copy over all the malware files into that package, and then uh, add a backdoor user account as well to the local just Linux system and then repackage it so it can be upgraded then. Uh, and then last interesting tidbit from it. So uh, Mandiant actually theorized that the malware offers were, authors were having issues with stability uh, when it comes to shutdowns for the device. And so one of the functionalities in the malware actually goes and uh, patches the, the legitimate uh, binary firewall base D on the system. Uh, which includes a, a call to go for system shutdown. So there's a string in there calls sbin uh, shutdown with the parameters now. Uh, and this malware script goes in and replaces that with a call instead to a new bash script that they save in a different directory called ipconfig6. And the contents of that ultimately shut down the device. But before that, it actually shuts down the ETH0 interface and then waits 90 seconds before ultimately shutting down. So interesting, like they... Sounds like they want to gracefully exit whatever command and control connection they have before allowing the device to shut down. I'm curious what bug caused them to add in that uh, additional functionality there too. It is, by the way, fun. I mean, in this case, they're kind of uh, adjusting to bugs that might be in the device itself. But we know that from other experiences that the malware, you know, malware itself can have bugs too that cause it to crash. So I also was particularly interested in the backup firewall that you mentioned to make sure it can always restart processes if it, it for instance, crashes itself. <laughs> See, that one actually really stood out to me because that feels like the Band-Aid, uh, like rubber gum solution that I tend to have for a lot of scripts I run where, I mean, I've got a few things that 
I wouldn't say they're business critical, but at least very useful tools for our team within WatchGuard that I've literally got cron jobs that run once a day to manually restart whatever the process or program is just to make sure it keeps chugging along. Like it feels <laughs> like they took that style of uh, oh, troubleshooting sure. and, <laughs> and software development and threw it into this malware sample. Okay, let's just you know restart it once every day and make sure we've got another script that's making sure it restarts. I guess if you can't fix the bug, you might as well make sure that it at least stays online or comes back quickly. <laughs> or like the the feature, the scheduled reboot feature that some people add, not because of memory corruption bugs, but because people just want to schedule a reboot every day, right? Memory corrupt, memory leaks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or memory leaks. Anyone. Sorry, thank you. And oh man, I had forgotten about that feature in some appliances <laughs> that folks sometimes used. <laughs> anyways. I have a feeling there are um, many more appliances than the ones we might specifically be referencing to. <laughs> it's not even just appliances. It's like systems in general. I'm honestly, I'm surprised whenever I encounter anything that has an uptime of more than like a year. I mean, first off, that means you potentially didn't patch it for anything in the last year that required it. Kind of scary. For kernel, yeah. But at the same time, it's impressive when something survives that long. We have we have found customers, even with old FB 100s, Firebox 100s, that had like well over 400 days of uptime. I I remember taking screenshots one back. This is way back in Pop Pop Quarry days when I was in support. So I guess well over 20 years ago now. But i uh, just being surprised by how long some people had on firewall updates but that scared me because it also besides your point if they haven't patched it in ages they also tend to network hardware is install and forget it in a closet or a LAN room and that's just as bad you should be checking policy monitoring yeah you don't have to be on the device every day but uh so mandiant they didn't actually their publication didn't include any explicit attribution section like they've had in previous ones, but they, uh, at least to justify their um, accusation that it was China that was responsible for it. But they did actually link to two previous and pretty recent investigations of similar behavior targeting the likes of Pulse Secure and uh, Forta OS's SSL VPN appliances too. And so it sounds kind of more like they put the dots together and notice similar behavior versus some of the more common yeah, they basically call it a, a, a previously found pattern of of Chinese network device compromises, like you say. No, they didn't talk about TTPs. They didn't give any specific evidence, but they say it follows a pattern. I was also curious at the point that you know they haven't proven it's it's China, but I. I'm I'm unclear on when they say this if they just mean Chinese criminal actors or Chinese state-sponsored actors. And they do, I mean, what they do point to in I think both your what you mentioned the Pulse Secure and, and Fortinet issues of the past is they sometimes call them Chinese APT actors and they mention espionage. So it leads me to believe that they're assuming it's state-sponsored Chinese, but it it was very unclear, wasn't it? I mean, let's be a little realistic here. There isn't exactly the private organizations in China aren't always necessarily fully private. And in the case oh, of yeah, like yeah, espionage sure. like this, you have to imagine they at least have the blessing of the government to be able to carry out activity like this. That's a good I mean, point. But backing. that said, I mean, the PRC, uh, they definitely have real red team government people, actors, ones that are, I mean, actually hundreds, if not thousands. I think they have some of the biggest 
people at cubes in a government building doing red team hacking of many of the states out there, probably even more than Russia, who is also known for having locations for the GRU and other places. So if you talk to anyone at our federal government uh, that works in like cyber, like FBI, NSA, CISA, whatever, they all point to China as like the biggest cyber threat to the United States oh, for these sure. days, even more so than Russia. If you, I forget the exact name of the video, but I think they're very concerned with intellectual property in China. So if you haven't seen the FBI and the DOJ's, I think it's like a, a video about Beijing and IP theft. If you go to YouTube and look up Beijing IP theft FBI, I think you'll find a very good video talking about some of this. That's right. Yeah, I remember that one. Um, so uh, the... Again, the details, like technical details that us nerds like were a little light in this report, which is understandable considering the circumstances. I will say like SonicWall's response to this was actually pretty great. They released yeah. new firmware for the devices that include some additional uh, hardening and security controls, things like file integrity monitoring, anomalous process identification, and more prominent notifications for critical patches the device might be missing, like things to help secure it and help notify administrators too which are always great. Um, so hats off to them for that one in a understandably awkward time. Yeah, I, I would say takeaways here. I, I think you should, uh, obviously, we're not here to bash Sonic in any way. Uh, we've talked about Cyclops Blink on our podcast. You can go back and look at that. So these attacks happen. But at a very high level, the things uh, I... Who cares what the vendor is? If I were to look at this attack and know that you know, Pulse Secure, Fortinet, Cyclops, Blink. Bad guys are targeting network firmware. Uh, so me and Mark have been talking about updating IoT devices, but we really need to get better at making sure to pick IoT devices that have firmware security and integrity checks. Another thing we also added and updated in our devices uh, recently as well. So I was very interested in, in, you know, check your firmware. Firmware is becoming a repeated theme for these state-sponsored actors. But the other big interesting thing is the persistence, you know, the fact that it survived update processes. So just because you're updating your device doesn't necessarily mean you're cleaning malware. And that, that can potentially go for any device that doesn't have things like the file uh, integrity monitoring that's continuous on what processes are running. So just high-level trends you guys should remember. Uh, obviously, it applies to device manufacturers, including us, that have had this direct threat. But I would think about it for every hardware device because I think the threat actors realize it's a blind spot. Most organizations, not necessarily, I mean, obviously, some vendors need to improve their file integrity checking. But a lot of organizations, too, aren't really thinking about this hardware as the uh, attack surface of preference when it really is, you know, from an attacker perspective, a perfect place to attack. And as a, like an owner slash administrator of this too, like there's things you should be doing to make sure you're not shooting yourself in the foot. Like obviously you can't restrict all internet access to a VPN aggregator because the whole point of it is to aggregate VPN connections from across the internet. But there are still services on it that you don't need to expose to the internet, like management access. Now, Mandiant didn't explicitly call out management access as a potential intrusion vector for this one. But as we've seen in previous incidents, Cyclops Blink and others included, exposed management access to the internet is a very common avenue for threat actors to gain their initial access. Um, so if you are going to have anything, whether it be a network security appliance or a 
uh, management tool you use for your IT operations, uh, make sure you do not have those exposed to the internet uh, if you have the capabilities not to. Uh, either way, though, uh, interesting seeing some of the details about this. Um, but yeah, again, uh, if you are a, uh, also a SonicWall administrator, make sure you've installed the latest patches to benefit from the protections that they've put in. Um, so moving on now, we actually have two uh, new releases in the world of critical infrastructure uh, in just the last couple of weeks here. So if you remember, was it last episode? Yeah, it was last episode where we discussed the White House's new national cybersecurity strategy, uh, which was heavily focused, not completely, but heavily focused around securing critical infrastructure and different sectors within that space. I think we even wa mentioned that water was going. It was one of the critical infrastructure they would focus on because there's news of that. Even I mean, not in the detail we'll cover now, but that that came out at the same time. Yep, and part of the uh, one of the sections in that new national cybersecurity strategy was all about using whatever regulatory appendage the government had in any given space to start enacting cybersecurity requirements within critical infrastructure, and we have now seen in the last week, I guess, potentially week and a half when you're listening to this, uh, two brand new examples of exactly that happening. Um, so the first one comes from the world of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, that is specifically targeting public water systems. Uh, so last week, they released a memorandum from the EPA's assistant administer, administrator for water. Uh, it was a 13-page document Basically, it's starting out by pointing out all of the increased attacks against critical infrastructure facilities like public water systems um, and how they have the potential to disable or contaminate delivery for drinking water. And if you remember, like there was a really prominent example of this exact style of attack. That was, man, that must have been almost two years ago now, right? In Oldsmar, Florida, a relatively small uh, town in Florida where... Uh, through a insecure remote access software installed on one of the machines, someone was able to get in and increase the levels of lie in the water system. And luckily, there was a technician on site in the plant that noticed the mouse moving around and clicking a bunch of stuff, and they were able to reverse it, And assuming they probably had fail-safes to prevent that from actually causing damages too. But that was a pretty prominent example of this exact style of attack that the EPA is calling out as a threat to water uh public water systems everywhere can i, I, I there's older yeah. ones too by the way this even happened way back in 2001 in australia uh that was a, a time when i i think it was a, a 49 year old guy named vitek Bowden, who i think might I, I can't remember but it was basically some sort of revenge attack on the state but he did a cyber assault on basically in this case, it related to water, but the sewage control system of the water and waste management system. And he is able to ultimately release 265,000 gallons of untreated sewage uh, in the local parks and rivers. Gross. And apparently marine life died. Obviously, the residents were not happy. Uh, but it, it, you know, sewage water tightly connected, and it just goes to show, you know, besides having lye that can literally poison you, there's a lot of actual physical and, and, and significant damage you can do if you can gain access to those critical systems. Cyber attack in 2001, was the internet even invented then? Oh, shush. 
I was using ARPANET in the 80s. So, yes. You just, and, and in the 90s, it was there. You just had to use AOL to get to it. All of these water systems connected to their token ring networks. Yeah, um, exactly. So, anyways, in the memorandum, they basically lay out the threat landscape for the water sector, specifically in critical infrastructure. And they then clarified the EPA's role in ensuring public water systems are able to deliver safe and clean water, uh, basically saying as the regulatory oversight for this sector, we can also regulate cybersecurity requirements too. And so the memorandum, it really boils down to uh, improving this mandatory sanitary, sanitary survey that, that water uh, service providers already have to do regularly and adding cybersecurity requirements to it as well. Um, so they basically say uh, if a public water service uh, uses ICS or other operational technology as part of their operation, which I'm willing to bet is almost all of them, yeah. uh, then the state must evaluate the adequacy of cybersecurity of that operational technology for producing and distributing safe water. And if the state determines that a cybersecurity deficiency identified during the survey was significant, the state must use its authority to require the public water system to address it. Uh, they went on to define what they meant by significant deficiencies. So prior to cybersecurity being shoved into this, it was a uh, defects in design, operation, or maintenance, or a failure or malfunction of the sources, treatment, storage, or distribution systems that the state determines to be causing or having the potential for causing the introduction of contamination into the water delivered to its customers. That was a very, very legal definition. <laughs> um, so that was the original one. Uh, but now they're saying they're translating it to cybersecurity and basically saying that any deficiencies should or could potentially include the absence of uh, practice or a control, uh, that uh, the presence of a vulnerability that has a high risk of being exploited, uh, either directly or indirectly to compromise the operational technology used in the treatment or distribution of water. Basically saying, like, do your due diligence. And if there's a serious issue that could cause damage to the system, you have to address it. And it's up to states now to enforce that as well, too. Um, so it goes on to give some options as well, too, on how to conduct the uh, cybersecurity portion of the sanitary survey. Uh, they say that they can either do self-evaluation, either it's self-administered or preferably through a third party. Uh, they did say if you're doing a self-assessment, it needs to follow a government or private sector approved method, like a NIST framework or something like that. Say they also recommend using state-led evaluations too, um, or if you've already covered by an existing state program. The example they gave is like if your state homeland security department already covers all critical infrastructure, including water, then that's sufficient to cover this as well too. Uh, but most importantly, like they're not just laying out all these new rules for public water systems. They are also the EPA as an organization providing resources, uh, both technical and educational to both public water system administrators, uh, organizations, whatever, and the states in charge of inspecting them now too. Uh, so they've just published a new evaluation guidance document on their website. They're offering training sessions for both states and public water systems on evaluating cybersecurity. And they're also making available subject matter experts for consultations too, for any questions or things that pop up. So this is honestly, this feels like a good way of doing this type of regulation. Like we talked about in the last episode, how you can't just come in and say, here's our new set of requirements, especially in some of these critical infrastructure sectors where 
they're not for profit or the profit margins are so low that they simply don't have the resources to be able to follow through with them. So coming through with the requirements, understanding that they're necessary, but then also from the federal level, providing whatever resources you can to actually get them enacted is I think a, a really good way of doing this type of action. Um, and one I hope to see continuing going forward too. Absolutely. Um, the last five pages in the memorandum were all basically just like justifications in the form of an FAQ for why the EPA has the regulatory authority to require these new cybersecurity surveys, which like stood out to me because my first thought on this was like, this is kind of like, so the FDA is responsible for regulating light, uh, like lasers and wavelengths and stuff. And that always felt a little funky. Like, you know, light is not food or a drug. In the same way, why is the Environmental Protection Agency doing cybersecurity? But at the same time, like the whole point of that whole national cybersecurity strategy was take the ones most in the best place to enforce these requirements and use them. It, it, it does make sense to me, even using that old Australia sewage semi-related thing, because I mean, that literally had environmental effects, poison in the waters. I mean, the water system includes dams and stuff like that, which are all connected to nature intimately because they are nature. So anything you anything a threat actor does to the water system doesn't only affect humans with our drinking, but infects the entire environment that the water system is around. So it makes sense. Uh, you know, obviously, I do think things like CISA and the, you know, our, our federal national security should have say in the matter generally for all critical infrastructure. But when you're trying to get things done and, you know, there aren't uh, specific people taking accountability, I see nothing wrong with the EPA being one method of, of trying to get companies to up their security game, trying to get water treatment or, or water facilities in particular to up their security game. Yeah. Absolutely. By the way, no more acronyms. Is... What what are there? Are they P PWAs, public water systems? Oh, the amount of acronyms PWS. we learn every week. PWSs. Well, <laughs> yeah. on to the next acronym. The TSA uh, was also the <laughs> second organization to release new cybersecurity requirements last week. So TSA, Transportation Security Administration. At least that's one most people know just because they fly. Yeah, you're correct. Yep, exactly. Uh, so this time, they're, as you just hinted at, uh, their new rules are specifically targeted towards airports and aircraft operators. Um, so the new rules came from the TSA last week, and they dictate that TSA-regulated entities must develop network segmentation policies and controls to ensure the operational technology systems can continue to safely operate in the event of an IT system has become compromised. Uh, two, create access control measures to secure and prevent unauthorized access to critical systems, three, implement continuous monitoring and detection policies and procedures to defend against, detect, and respond to cybersecurity threats and anomalies that affect cybercritical systems operations, and then four, reduce the risk of exploitation of unpatched systems through the application of security patches and updates for operating systems applications, drivers, and firmware on critical systems in a timely manner using a risk-based methodology. So my first reaction is this is like, well, yeah, aren't they doing that? That's like all the very <laughs> exactly. basic thing you do when you put up any IT system. That's not even the hard security. <laughs> so like, why do we have to say those four basic things? Does that mean they haven't been doing that? I mean, they're literally 
making it super hard for us to get on a plane because they're worried about terrorists blowing things up. And you're telling me they're not already <laughs> segmenting these systems, making sure there's no bad guys in them, patching them. Wait a second. <laughs> and the funny thing like this, uh, these new requirements, didn't they come with like a, you know, official as of three months from now? It seems like they're all just in effect immediately coming from the TSA, which kind of points to the fact that this is all maybe these should have been doing already. Maybe the government assumed they were doing it too and found something out. <laughs> the the new guidelines, they describe them as, quote, an emergency action because of persistent cybersecurity threats against U.S. critical infrastructure, including the aviation sector, which, yes, it's trans. an emergency, but at the same time, this isn't a new emergency. And so no. hopefully a lot of the organizations have been already following through with this, but Maybe now you need a slap on the wrist from TSA in order to uh, actually get your ducks in a row, I guess. I don't it know. could be a lot worse, but they found a few laggards and the laggards were still being slow and they realized they didn't have anything officially telling them they had to. So this probably gives them more teeth. But yeah, I, I, I would be surprised that they didn't have this at the, the TSA section of the airport. Uh, but this does make me suspect that maybe they didn't. Eek. And this does come after in October of last year, they put out a notification to railroad carriers that they must implement similar strategies by just this last February as well, too, uh, which hopefully their strategies work better than keeping trains on tracks on the tracks in the himself. state of Ohio <laughs> lately. One particular but, uh, company, too. <laughs> exactly. I don't even want to know what that company's cybersecurity is with the lack of... Uh, <laughs> keeping two trains on their tracks. But either way, if like we take a step back, these are now two separate federal like regulatory safety agencies that are enacting new cybersecurity specific rules within their given spaces. Like it seems to be at least this section of that national cybersecurity strategy is moving along real dang quick. Like these were probably already in the works well before that came out, but it's clearly an area of focus for the federal government. And that's good to see better late than never, I guess. I feel this is the one they can push quicker without new legislation. Like this, uh, they already have agencies under their control and legal authority, like like EPA and other things, for critical infrastructure. So they don't have to necessarily write new bills to be able to you know, to to regulate in a way. Whereas the Section Three of the White House thing we talked about last week is is more private industry, and that's where they might have to change laws, so it will take more time. Yeah, absolutely. It is still it's good seeing them act on this, and like it sounds like they're speeding up, not slowing down when it comes to putting in more strict rules around cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, which is good. Like CISA has done a great job over the past ten years of good like uh, guidelines. For critical infrastructure to follow and i'm glad to see that and i was starting to add requirements to keep these industries accountable for the critical threat that they have to our country if something were to happen to them um, overall plus i think though i'm sure some of our friends in those industries are probably not too happy with some of the things they may have to be implement implementing on a quick timeline now um so moving on to the last story for this week i really just wanted to highlight some cool research that I had stumbled across in like a Reddit post a couple of weeks ago that I thought would be fun to chat about. Um, so there's a security researcher called Nathan Farlow that posted it on his blog, uh, farlow.dev, his details uh, for finding a vulnerability 
in the Nintendo DSi web browser, which is now slightly over 15 years old from its initial release in Japan. Uh, so in his post, he said that his original plan, he wanted to find a vulnerability in the web browser of this old handheld video game system uh, to use in a capture the flag contest uh, later in the year. Because he thought that based off the DSi's age over 15 years, uh, the lack of security mitigations on it, like he'd be able to come up with something just over a weekend. He pointed out that it ended up taking him close to six months before he actually found the exploit, which is kind of surprising, uh, at least in his opinion. Um, but the, his post goes through his steps on vulnerability analysis, knowing known vulnerabilities and similar software used elsewhere. Uh, fuzzing techniques and his whole setup on how to find what ultimately was a remote code execution flaw in the browser for this system. Um, so first off, some context. Uh, the Nintendo DSi little handheld gaming thing, like the next evolution of the Game Boy, uh, it uses Opera 9.5 for its web browser, which was originally released in September of 2007. Uh, so way back in Pop Pop Cory's days. Um, oh, shut up. You definitely had a DSi and used Opera too. <laughs> you know it. I've had every single Nintendo system ever released dating back to the original Game Boy. So yes, yes, I have. <laughs> I, I can't say you don't, ha you never had a Famicom. I didn't I have a Famicom. I had a Famicom living in Japan. And I used to have a bronze clamshell Donkey Kong game even way back in the 80s. It was all LED based, but it it the, that clamshell that they use for the DS comes from the old Watchman, I think they called it, Nintendo Watchmans. So anyways, old as dirt web browser that has clearly not been updated in the last 14, 15 years. Uh, so interestingly though, another bit of context, the Nintendo DSi doesn't actually have an operating system. So it's basically, it's just a boot system for launching games and changing settings on the device, uh, which means that system privileges are handed out by a specific register in the processor instead of like operating system API calls that it hooks into. And what this means is the web browser on its own has enough privileges to run most homebrew software if you're able to exploit it. Doesn't have enough to gain like persistence across boots on the system. But if you can find a code execution flaw, you can effectively run whatever the heck you want on the underlying system uh, without needing to do any like kernel exploitation on it because there is no kernel. There is no operating system. That was kind of news to me. I assume there was like some like rudimentary thing, but it's basically just a bootloader, which is kind of, I don't know, that's cool. Um, so he went over some of his setup for this. He used Melon DS, which is a Nintendo DSi emulator. Uh, that's able to emulate the home menu, the browser, and Wi-Fi uh, because turns out it's way easier to fuzz systems if you can do it in parallel and mass instead of just trying to like pull up a web browser on your handheld Game Boy a million times in a row. Um, he used MelonDS uh, GDB stub, so it allowed him to hook in his debugger into the emulator to debug crashes that he was able to cause through his fuzzing. I guess should we, we should probably define fuzzing. I've said it a few times. Effectively, just trying random inputs wherever you can in hopes of identifying interesting or unique crashes that might point to some memory corruption vulnerability that you could potentially exploit. Um, so in his setup, he hosted multiple Python-based HTTP servers on his laptop, spun up multiple DSi emulators, and again, in parallel, just fired them away to try different inputs. Um, and different exploit activities around known bugs in Opera 9.5. So again, it's a 16-year-old web browser, if my math is correct. Maybe even, yeah, 16. 
And so there are known vulnerabilities in this program. Uh, but interestingly enough, he noticed he couldn't reproduce a lot of the bugs, or at least they weren't causing interesting crashes, ones that he could potentially abuse. Um, so he mentioned he took some time off from analysis for a bit, but then came back with a hypothesis for why they might not actually be triggering those in interesting crashes. Uh, he thought he surmised that maybe they were, but he just didn't have a way to reliably catch the crash um, and potentially act on it with like a uh, reading or writing into a memory location. Uh, so as an example, uh, if a use after free vulnerability occurred, which we'll define in just a second, um, but no new data was written to that freed memory, then you wouldn't even observe a crash on the system. So use after free, it's a type of memory exploit that abuses basically not cleaning up references to memory allocations when they're freed. So in like lower level programming, or at least like older, I don't know what the right terminology is, I probably should, like C and stuff where you have to allocate and deallocate your own memory, do your own memory management. Um, you might like allocate, let's say a couple hundred bytes to hold like a string, like the uh, something a user types into a form or something like that. And then maybe you save a pointer to that memory location. So the address that this 500 byte uh, chunk of memory lies in actual memory you could save a pointer to that in a, another variable, like string location. So then anytime you want to interact with that string, you look up the string location variable, and you know that there's a 512 byte character array there. When you're done using it, like they move on to a different page or something on there, uh, you typically deallocate that memory. If you don't, that's how you get memory leaks. Um, but if you don't also clean up that reference to that pointer variable, uh, you have what's called a, a use after free, or at least a, a pointer that looks to a, that points to a already freed bit of memory. And so what can happen there is if that program reallocates all or part of that memory to another application, uh, you, if, and then reuses that original pointer, you could potentially overwrite memory that's being used elsewhere in the program or read secrets out of that memory that's being used elsewhere. And any time that you can modify memory like that in a way that wasn't intended by the application, you can potentially gain code execution on the system. And so I guess that um, maybe these this type of vulnerability was occurring, uh, but he just wasn't able to observe it because of the tools that he was using. Um, so what he did was he went out and started trying to find either a Linux or a Windows version of Opera 9.5 so that he could use some of his more traditional debugging tools and catch some of these instead of the GDB plugin for a Nintendo Game Boy, effectively, um, which he actually had some trouble finding. So he used the Wayback Machine to go see if he could grab the file downloads off of Opera's website, but the files themselves were not archived, just the names of them. But he was able to use those names and then Google for them, find random websites that still had the files up, and then verify that the MD5 checksum was the same, so it was the actual file download. And that's how he was able to get a 16-year-old copy of Windows uh, Opera 9.5. Um, so with the new debugging options, uh, they found that what they thought was a unexploitable null dereference vulnerability was actually a use-after-free vulnerability. So null dereference, it's basically attempting to use a pointer, so a, a variable, an object, something like that, um, without confirming that it actually contains a value or if it's set to null. Like maybe something broke in the program or something returned wrong and a value didn't get set, but you try and use that value as if it did, that can cause issues in the program at a minimum crash it, or in this case, potentially give you code execution on it. 
So it gets even more technical in here and in the weeds where you need to know a bit about like JavaScript and using CSS objects in order to like carefully put a no-op sled into memory and then execute it with shellcode on the system. But long story short, he set up this exploit that uses JavaScript and the CSS insert rule function, basically a way to append CSS styling to a website dynamically with JavaScript. Uh, and HTML canvas, so a way to draw something onto a web page of a specific size, um, in order to allocate specific sizes of memory within the application full of his no-op sled, basically the way to get to a pointer that he can then control and execute, uh, and then deliver his exploit code, which was ultimately something called a mini TWL payload to deliver the TWL light menu, which is a DSI homebrew menu. So six months after starting, uh, he was able to find this vulnerability in a 16-year-old web browser on a 15-year-old system in order to gain code execution in a way that people hadn't found before and ultimately run homebrew. And this is one of my favorite styles of security research. Just, I don't know, it kind of mixes my passions of video games with just hardcore research in a cool and interesting way. You and I, I like have the same interests. So same with me. We always like looking at gaming vulnerabilities, and and uh, we I, I think we've talked about in the past how I feel like consoles, including the DSI, are among the most secure platforms. I mean, let's talk about Secure Boot. Recapping our first story, where they didn't have, it's it's all due to piracy. It's that any vulnerability like this isn't just a a bug it's a way to root a system so i even admit in my college days uh, i did gray mod shipping of, of platforms before uh, not necessarily just for platforms but uh, for piracy but for things like xbmc media player which i'm sure all xbox people have played with before so it's interesting to see how security flaws are used you know in other devices and really it, it's uh you know, a lot. It shows how the market and, and finance drives security. Consoles are among the most secure devices, even before phones did secure boot, because of piracy. They were losing money be because of it. So they were, I would say, these gaming console makers paid more attention to hardware and software vulnerabilities than anyone else. So they kind of lead the game here. It's always interesting to find new flaws in these these console devices because they have so many security mechanisms built around them. By the way, I don't think we talked about it on the podcast, but while we're on the subject, last week, you know, not as cool as this because, of course, the Opera browser comes with every DSi, so it's part of the hardware. But Nintendo also had to take down Mario Kart and Splatoon for a while because uh, it turned out it's access for it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's because, uh, you know, old research, I think you, we talked about it. You remember this, the ENL buffer pone. If you look up ENL buffer pone, you'll find a GitHub. And this is something that affected the Nintendo 3DS, but also some versions of Switch and Wii U games. And it was found in, in various, it wasn't just Mario Kart, it wasn't just Splatoon, but various games had a vulnerability as well that could lead to remote code execution on the platform itself. 
So not as valid. In this case, you have to have the game in order to exploit the platform instead of just something but that's I'd built argue in. It's a little more serious too, because in this case, like someone you are playing against in these games could gain code execution on your own system. On you. Yeah, and absolutely. It was good. a nine, 9.8 out of 10 for criticality. So this one may not just be used for pirates and homebrewers to take over a system. This could literally be used for criminals. And man, I wouldn't want uh, tracking malware on my Switch, which... Uh, connects to my internal. Imagine someone hacking a switch and while you're on your internal network, that becomes the bastion host, the pivot on your network to real devices. That would be that would be a scoop. But anyways, if you're I interested would, uh, in these, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, smart ass comment of the day. Uh, I, I do like the thought of gaining homebrew on a Nintendo switch by like beating Rainbow Road and Mario Kart in a certain way to your <laughs> vulnerability. <laughs> That's Have you seen the new cool trailer way. for Mario? By the way, they visualize the Rainbow Road pretty cool. Man, that is as a hard well as track. The SNL version too. <laughs> There's there. Oh, the the Last of Us version of it was even better. But yeah, yes. Rainbow <laughs> Road, man. No no barriers. You gotta gotta know how to drive. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, very good point for that one too. And it's not the first time like a gaming service has been brought offline intentionally in order to. Uh, buy time to fix an issue was it like dark souls around the time where the the elden ring same company or developer um but different game uh, they had to bring their online servers down for like months because of a again remote code execution vulnerability through the online service that could allow someone in you're playing against or with or whatever to gain code execution on your local windows machine in this case so still some besides scary piracy and criminal there. hackers, they have to worry about cheaters too. These remote yep. code execution are, are great for you know online cheaters that just want to beat you to take advantage of it as well. Yeah. Anyways, though, well, cool, cool stuff. research on a super old video game system. Uh, but I don't know. Always fun to read that. Hopefully there will be another cool one to uh, talk Man, about. Man, check out the Donkey Kong Game Watch. I really wish I, I I'd kept mine. That thing might be worth something now, even though it's old as dirt. 1982 was when I had a clamshell. I had it. Uh, I lived in Japan for a period of time, so it was pretty and cool to have. Surprised electricity was even then. invented then. <laughs> oh, bite me. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.